Okay, everybody, uh, welcome back to Popcorn Drink Combo. Uh, Peter and I have been absent for a little bit, and it's not because we are lazy. It's because we are working on our next project, which will run simultaneously and in parallel to Popcorn Drink Combo. Uh, I'm not going to say what it is just today, but uh, probably in the next podcast or so when we launch it, we'll make an announcement. We're very excited about it. Uh, Peter, welcome. Welcome, Doug. Today, um, this was my pick. We are going to be talking about uh, the 1986 version of The Fly, uh, directed and uh, co-written by none other than David Cronenberg and uh, starring uh, Jeff Goldblum and two teleportation, three teleportation pods. (laughs) Well, it starts with two. Right, but there's a third one that gets revealed along the way. Uh, did you, when we were kid, did you ever see the 1958 one? Yeah, I saw it, but that's probably the last time I saw it. I, you know, I watched a ton of like old horror movies as a kid and I watched the fly as a kid. It was a, it was a four thirty movie on, uh, WABC in New York, uh, when we were kids once and I watched it and didn't think it was very scary. Like even as a kid, like it looked very like. You know, guy in a it looks it looked like nineteen fifties sci-fi. Yeah, scary and, movie. and Vincent Price was just not scary at all. What about the big reveal at the end? Spoiler alert: He turns into a fly. <laughs> There's only a few scenes in the original Fly that are good, but the end scene is probably the best one. Like my father pantomimed that scene before we actually saw it, so I kind of knew it was coming. <laughs> But I remember I watched it with my dad, or I think I started, and my dad came home from work and watched the last, like, 20 minutes of it with me. And he, my dad had seen it in the theater. And both uh, the 1958 uh, version and the 1986 version are very closely based off of the same short story by George Langelan, I guess, published in 1957 and none other than Playboy magazine. Hmm. The 1958 version follows the uh the story much more closely in the in the original movie and the the short story the protagonist his head and one of his arms are transposed onto the fly that's it whereas in Cronenberg's movie it's more of an all-encompassing event where right. Jeff Goldblum uh you know via special effects by Chris Wallace uh, transforms entirely into a six-foot-tall insect. Right, via the miracle of teleportation and genetics. And and practical effects. Right. <laughs> right, there's no CG in this. Well, I guess there's a few optical effects, but they're not really CG. Like, when they actually go through the, the teleporter, when they're sort of digitized in the teleporter, there's a little tiny bit of like digital or optical effect there, but that's all. So do you want to do a really quick uh, summary as is our one before we get down to nitty gritty? Sure. Um, so uh, Jeff Goldblum plays an eccentric uh, child prodigy, grown up scientist who uh, has been working in his own pad, basically his little sort of Sheldon Cooper with a libido. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he uh, sort of yeah he he he's been working on teleportation he um basically meets Gina Davis who's a, a science journalist um brings her back convinces her to cover him and uh, as he teleports things has problems initially teleporting things that are living 
can demonstrates to her that he can do inanimate objects. And then he gets drunk and one night decides to teleport himself after he successfully sent a baboon through. But a fly gets in the works, literally. And um, a fly gets teleported with him and his the computer combines them into one organism on the other end. And at that point, over the course of several months, um, he he turns into, quote, Brundlefly, because uh, his character's name is Seth Brundle, and he names himself Brundlefly as he figures out what happens and gradually turns into this combined organism and uh, becomes um, rather unpleasant as it happens. And uh, in the finale, there's a... Uh, climactic scene with um, her um, with Gina Davis's competing love interest and her and Brundlefly and in the end he's put out of his misery or Brundlefly is put out of its misery right in a in a in a fan- I honestly we're, we'll we'll get to the ending in detail but I think the way that they ended this is great and they they filmed a couple of alternate endings and they went with the best one which is the most abrupt the the Gina Davis character shoots him at his request. Right. Uh kills him and then boom, it just goes to black. And I yeah. thought that was the best way to do it. That was ballsy. Any, anything else. <clears throat> I mean, you know, this movie, you know, this is this is what they call body horror. Mm-hmm. Um, right? Like the the whole movie is sort of like you know, like something terrible happens to your person that's beyond your control and you don't like it and you don't want it and it happens anyway. And like, I kind of feel like you could do a trilogy with this American Werewolf in London and The Thing, the John Carpenter, The Thing, because they have a tremendous amount of uh, related themes, um, some black humor. They all make fantastic use of practical effects. Um, and uh, no one does well in any of these movies. Like, these are those are, you know, three <laughs> dark movies where people come to terrible terrible ends um but like as i was watching this i was initially thinking about the thing a lot and then as it sort of went on i thought well you know there's there's a lot of american werewolf in london here because you have a lot of sympathy for seth whereas in the same way that in american werewolf in london you have sympathy for the protagonist there like he recognizes he is turning into the werewolf and he doesn't like it yeah he you know David David is the character in American World from London. Right. Jeff Goldblum in this you're sympathetic most of the way, then there's a sort of then they play with your sympathy at the towards the end of the movie as he becomes he becomes unpleasant. Um but then he sort of redeems himself at the very end. Um, and, and he and he even he even tells her like stay away from me like right. it's not safe for you here like like the insect brain is taking over my brain and the insect brain is a lot less charitable. Right, he's turning it. Right, he's turning into Brundlefly. He's not the same person anymore, and he tells her that. And um, it's uh, there is a ton of of, of makeup. Um, special effects in the movie as he turns into the fly, fly gradually. Um, and I think, and by the end, he's, he's essentially like a puppet or a maquette. Like, uh, yeah. like when he, when he undergoes his final transformation, um, he kind of, he kind of sheds the last remnants of his human form to the point where she actually pulls off his mandible. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, in a right. great scene, by the way, she pulls off his mandible, and then he literally, he literally like steps out of his skin, and he's just revealed to be an you know an exoskeleton, you know six foot tall insect that vaguely resembles Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Right, probably can't play the piano as well anymore. <laughs> no, and and it, it's um, kind of like uh, what was that movie with uh, David Bowie and the puppets, uh, Dark oh, Crystal or uh, something, something like that. Dark yeah, I think, Crystal. Yeah. I, well, it was Bowie and Dark Crystal? Or maybe it was the Jim other. Henson. No, Labyrinth. Was yeah, the other yeah. One. I was gonna say you're mixing your like mid '80s fantasy. Yeah, it was it was Dark Crystal with the it felt you know like <laughs> the the stick uh, horror puppets. Uh, and they had, you know, uh, Seth Brundle goes through, depending on how you count it, anywhere from like six to eight stages in his transformation. Really, the first one is, you know, after he goes through the teleporter, you know, like they just kind of make his skin look bad. And then like he really starts to change. I mean, Chris Wallace. Um, you know, his name is the first one that you see in the credits. And I read the anecdote that when they showed it to the preview audiences, you know, the movie fades to black at the end and it says, you know, Creature Effects by Chris Wallace. And the audience was like on their feet cheering. And Cronenberg said to Wallace, you're going to win the Oscar for this. And he did. Yeah. Um, and he was uh, he was offered. Oh, my God. I read this the other day. He was offered another movie. And he didn't take it to do this. I forget what the other movie he was offered was, uh, but he wanted to do this because he thought he'd have more freedom I think to was, make this movie. I think it was Howard's End. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, uh, what was I going to say? And, you know, it was, it was interesting because I read an interview with Chris Wallace and he said that uh, they were very, very aware that um, Rick Baker and the guys who had made The Wolf and American Werewolf in London had done a lot of media and press explaining how they did stuff. So they basically said, we can't do anything the audience saw in American Werewolf in London because it'll ruin the effect. Like the people who go to this saw that. So that's why like there's no sort of air bladders under the skin and things like that. Like they just didn't want to do it. And they had to sort of invent new effects. Mm-hmm. You know, Chris Wallace, by the way, at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, when uh tote the nazi melts yeah that's him that's his that's his effect and that's his idea and that effect is in this movie twice when um when he melts the hand and foot <laughs> right off of the third character and this played by john getz sort of gina davis's former boyfriend and editor um that's the exact same effect uh, it's just sort of a wax a wax appliance that's melted under a hot light in slow motion and sped up so that's how they do when he when his hand melts and the the foot is uh, sort of a similar related effect yeah it's yeah it's basically melting with a heat source right i remember when uh, when i saw this in the theater that for me the movie just goes over the edge when he takes the guy's foot off I think, yeah, I mean, I, I liked it much. I haven't seen it since uh, probably on videotape at, at some point, you know, after maybe, I don't know, couple, maybe 1988 or 89 or something like that. That's probably the last time I saw it. I liked it better this time. I think it holds up really well. And I, I, I thought it was okay back then, but it's it's definitely one of the uh, better genre pictures of that era and i was surprised how well it holds up i i love it i think it's a great 
uh, I think it's, it's just sort of a great period piece of sort of sci-fi horror. Um, and, and I think part of the reason it holds up is because it is practical effects. Like, CGI effects age quickly. You yeah. know, like, people are very, very savvy about, you know, lens flares and the way stuff moves and how the shadows and the lighting are all done. And, like, you know, like, they filmed an object on the set with natural lighting that, you know, that's basically going to look good forever. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's... You know, they were there interacting with it in real time. They were they could literally act off of Jeff Goldberg, Jeff Jeff Goldberg's, you know, makeup on the set live. And Gina Davis could interact with him as opposed to, you know, if George Lucas made this, the whole thing would be in front of a green screen. Yeah, there's not enough merchandising in it for him to have made yeah, it. That's for the sure. fly action figure never sold. <laughs> yeah, you could melt it with a hairdryer and it would Although you know. I thought it would be cool to have a telepod. Like I did look online to see if you could get like your own little like telepod prop or something. But I didn't I people there are homemade ones. Like people have three D printed their their own little telepods, but that was all I saw. Well if you ever go to prison you could carve it out of a bar of soap. Bob Burns, uh, just speaking of props, Bob Burns, uh, the sort of no, sort of famous prop collector, Bob Burns has almost all of the surviving The Fly props. Um, and there's videos of YouTube on him and sort of like photos of sort of like the props in his collection. Although I don't know where the actual telepods are. Like, I, think, I, don't, I didn't think that he had the telepods. He might not have the telepods. I think he does have Gina Davis in a glass jar. Because so, I've been wondering what happened to Gina Davis. Yeah, that's where you she's know, been. Ever since Cutthroat Island, we just never saw her again. By um, the way, just to tell you how old this movie is, Gina Davis is 63 and Jeff Goldblum is 66. And Gina Davis now. looks very good in this movie. Oh, like, she was you know, young and beautiful. Yeah, and they were dating. You know, so there's they got a lot married, of chemistry. Yeah, they got married after this. They they have a lot of chemistry on screen because they're you know they're together in real life. Although they didn't, they, their marriage didn't last too long because she ran off to marry Rennie Harlan eventually. Yeah, but no, they do have good chemistry. It's well acted. It's believable. I think that's why it really holds up besides the effects as the the characters are are believable. It doesn't feel like just a the movie doesn't feel like it's just a vehicle for um practical effects and makeup. Uh it feels like a it's taking you on an adventure and it's uh you know it's it it's feels a like tragedy. A, it's a tragedy and it's it's about hubris and it's about um uh, you know, his relationships with others, his meaning, uh, uh, Seth Brundle. Um, and it, it, it you want to find out what happens when you're watching it and it, it's compelling and that those things hold up well. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make a mockery of itself and it doesn't, uh, it's, it's not simply sort of, it's not too simple minded and yet it's not convoluted. It's about just about right. It's very well done. Yeah, and it allows you to suspend your belief just enough, you know, like it right. never sort of becomes over the top or a farce and it doesn't really have fun at its own expense. Like there's there's, you know, there's a virtually no humor in the entire movie. You know, in the beginning of the movie, Jeff Goldblum makes a few quips and puns and he's kind of witty. But really, once the transformation starts, the movie has a dead serious tone you know and it's funny because in a lot of ways it's not really a movie it's a play like there's three characters in this entire thing basically and and 90 percent of it is him and gina davis interacting i mean you could literally do this as a stage play and it would work just fine 
Right. It's three characters and one of them is changing through a lot of the movie. It's very Kafka-esque, which I'm sure escaped none of the filmmakers or the actors. Just the, you know, 14-year-old audience members. <laughs> right. You and me when we saw it. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, and, you know, the other thing about this movie that I was struck by, one is I was thinking it's a play, but the other thing that struck me when I was watching it is there's no hero. Like, like Seth is not the hero. Like, he's the protagonist, but he's not really heroic. Like, he doesn't really no. do anything heroic in this whole movie. And, you know, Gina Davis is initially motivated by, like, she wants to get a scoop. And, you know, her editor has only bad motives. You know, he wants to sort of get back at her. He's jealous of Jeff Goldblum. He wants to get a story. You know, like, he's, he's you know, he's he's portrayed as kind of a jerk who redeems himself at the 11th hour. Right. Um, but you know, like you feel sad for Jeff Goldblum going through this, but again, like it's, it's not the same as him being the hero. And it's not this sort of simple minded, um, Luddite conception technology is bad. Um, you know, it's, it's not that simple. Um, so there's his error or the errors or the, the blame in the movie is not simply, uh, attributed. It's really, really is more just, just tragic in a complex way. Um, there, there's bad luck involved. There's hubris involved there. You know, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of reasons, um, but it, it's not simple minded. So you, you can still appreciate it. You know, when I saw it and when we were when we were whatever young teenagers, uh, when we first saw it, you know, I I remember just sort of swallowing it hook, line and sinker. I remember when I was like gearing up to watch it, I was thinking, like, how does one guy build all this, you know, in a, in a in a loft and nobody notices? And what's what power source is running these, you know, these giant, you know, engines? Um, and, well, and I, how does the they, computer process natural language so well? Right. And but there's this sort of throwaway line that like, well, I work for this company and they don't really know what I'm doing and they just build what I say, you know, and they and I, they did sort of work in a sort of cockamamie explanation just so they could say that there we did it to explain how like one guy working alone, you know, he can like he's like an engineer. He's a computer expert. He's a geneticist like he can do every he's a quantum physicist like he does everything like it's yeah it's the, kind of like the biggest ask of the whole movie is how could one guy do this they leave it at genius but i mean he built he built a lot of stuff on his own i mean i don't think you could go to radio shack and get the parts for the, the right, computer home or, depot <laughs> right um do you know what the telepods are based on um Star Trek or something? They're based on motorcycle cylinders. Oh, yeah, I could see that. They, the, you know, with the, the radiators? Right. Um, so that that was where the look of the telepods came from. I think of all the Cronenberg movies, uh, I think this is my favorite one. I mean, I guess sort of like Scanner's Videodrome and this sort of make up his sort of, um, you know, his 80s, you know, trilogy. Yeah. Right. And, and and all three of those, you know, play off of the body horror angle, although this is the most commercial of the three and it's geared for the biggest audience. Right. Did you ever see Videodrome? I think once. 
a long but, time ago. Video drum is pretty interesting. Scanners is a little more amateurish and he's kind of figuring stuff out. Video drum has James Woods in it. And it's pretty interesting. Like there's a lot of like odd interactions with it's like this television set that they're all sort of like working around. But I don't know. It, it might be worth a podcast someday on uh, on video drum. And, you know, and then by the 90s, Cronenberg was, you know, he was doing like Crash. I don't know if you saw Crash. Yeah. Um, you know, like he's doing other stuff, but he kind of, you know, I don't, he, I don't think he ever really returns to this, this sort of level of work. Um, like he made Cosmopolis with uh, Robert Pattinson, but, you know, like none of those were huge movies like, like, like this was. And this was a big movie. I remember that. You know, there was a lot written about this at the time. And it was really sort of recognized as like a big, serious sci-fi slash horror film. I guess in that respect, this is related to Alien, which is also body horror. Right. Right. I mean, Alien also involves the idea that the the the, 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 the repulsive, awful thing could get inside you and take over your physical person. Right. I mean, Alien was uh, more game-changing you know she was was aiming a little higher a little bigger in some ways but um but yes i mean i think you know there were a lot of this type of genre and during the 80s you know not not the least because uh because movies like alien were, were such a massive success yeah but i mean trying to think whether there are other movies that took it this far in the 80s I don't I mean, think I so. I mean, I guess in 1978, there's the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yes, there's Body Snatchers. They made some TV series like with aliens like V. <laughs> right? V. Remember that? That was a big, <laughs> oh, big, big event. And that was sort of a little similar. What amazes me about Mark, what amazes me about V is that how awful it is on rewatching and how much we loved it as kids. <laughs> Blue um, Thunder. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of other terrible movies we love. Um, did you ever see, um, and I'm not changing the topic as much as it sounds, did you ever see The Ruins, which is a 2008 horror movie by Carter Smith? Uh, that's no. a, it's from a It's from a novel by Scott Smith, and that's sort of like, that's sort of similar to this in terms of like body horror. That's about a bunch of uh like young adults who are vacationing somewhere in Central America, and they end up on the top of this mayan or aztec ruin and and it's it's infested with this like weed it's like vine and the vine like if you just touch it once like it's in you and it literally takes over your person and and that has a lot of similarities to this too like like they recognize that they're trapped and they can't get off this ruin because if they step off the ruin the 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 natives around them are going to murder them because they know that they're infected so like they're just stuck on this thing slowly getting eaten by plants isn't that the one where mr spock shows emotion <laughs> Perhaps. Um, did you watch any, um, for the podcast, did you watch any of the deleted scenes or the alternate endings? It's pretty much all online. No, I really just, I watched just the regular cut of the movie. Um, I didn't go searching uh, for extra stuff. I know that there were a few deleted scenes. I didn't even know they were actually online. 
Yeah, the the um the the big scene is the so-called monkey cat scene, uh, where um he he tries to merge an alley cat and a baboon, and it it sort of comes out as this sort of like hideous deformed thing, um that he he ends up beating to death with like a crowbar or something, <laughs> and uh, a little a little less. Uh... And that's why they uh, took it out. And they were saying that when they tested it in early versions of the movie, they had that scene in. And the audience was unsympathetic to Seth after that. So they took it out and, and he remained a more sympathetic character till the end. I think they screen te- um, they they did another screen test with a two by four instead of the instead of the crowbar, but it was the same the same result. And there's four different endings. To this that they shot. One is which uh, she's back with Stathis, the, the third character, the guy without the hand and the foot. Um, and then there's a bunch of versions where she's pregnant uh, with uh, Seth's baby, one of which literally goes, the shot goes into her womb and you see that the baby has wings like it's a perfectly formed <laughs> baby with wings and that so they they had all these different kind of endings in the end thank god they went with the simplest one but you can watch like i saw the monkey cat scene and i saw the butterfly baby scene and uh and and things like that it's it's all pretty much on youtube and there's uh there was one other scene that they wrote and didn't film because they thought they couldn't do it where uh he is uh in a dumpster and he's like vomiting his, you know, digestive enzymes onto trash in the dumpster. And he's just eating trash out of the dumpster. And, and a homeless woman happens upon her and he attacks her and he dissolves her and eats her. And and that got written, but not filmed. And they just thought, like, too much, too far, can't do it. Like, even for this movie, they had a line in the sand <laughs> they couldn't do. And, and dissolving the homeless woman, I guess, was it. But you can, but you can read the scene online and... And the point of the scene was that even Seth realizes he's gone too far. Like he dissolves her and he eats her and then he feels bad about it. Hmm. Maybe she just wasn't very appetizing. <laughs> the homeless woman. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people saw this as a metaphor for AIDS, which I certainly didn't think of when I was a kid. But a lot of people saw this as a metaphor for AIDS. I don't know. Nah. What do you think? I think they thought that because he's a little spotty in the beginning. There's no other. There's no other connection. It really isn't. I I agree, but again, you know, '86 AIDS was on everybody's mind, and you know, there was a lot of fear. I don't know. I'm just that was a very very common. Re- I remember too, like it makes you sick, and you're you know, you look unhealthy, and you kind of yeah, go downhill. I don't know about that. It, you it's just, just interesting. The very beginning, maybe you know, be- I'm telling you, it's just because he's spotty in the beginning, and he looks he looks sweaty and spotty, but then he. There's no transformative aspect to AIDS. I, I don't. I think you're right. I think it's because it, it there was a just the appearance early on when he's transforming, and the fact that everybody was worried about it. There was a, a lot of attempts to make a, a sequel. There were at least three attempts to make a sequel that didn't get filmed, and, and then it, we ended up unfortunately. Did. Well, yeah. That's after. So they so Chris Wallace got promoted to director and he made The Fly 2 uh which I believe stars Eric Stoltz. Jesus. Um Eric Stoltz had a tough 80s, you know, Booth from Back <laughs> to the Future, The Fly 2. Like he had a rough time in the 80s, you know. It's all downhill for him after Mask until Pulp Fiction. Um 
And the fly too, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's just, it's an enormous, enormous step down. Like poor Chris Wallace. Like it's just, it's a terrible movie. Let's not ruin it because I guess what my next pick is. No, I'm just <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because it's, it's, um, it's, it's the fly without the charm and the wit and and the fast editing like the, this movie the fly the one we're talking about it's 95 minutes long it's just boom 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 like you know five minutes into it everything is set up and you know everything you need to know like it moves very quickly um and and sort of none of the things that made the fly good really make it into the fly too and eric stoltz is you know not really well cast in the movie he's sort of the supposed to be the son of seth brundle and uh, gina davis in that but it, it doesn't work particularly well it's tough to make a sequel out of this movie. I mean, you you know you're just trying to cash in. There's no way to make a good sequel right, to this and movie. And Cronenberg wisely exited. So this movie, I think, cost $15 million and made 60 And The Fly 2, for comparison, um, uh, it made $38.9 million according to Wikipedia, but I, I don't know how much it cost. But I can tell you that I've actually seen The Fly 2, and it's it's terrible. Like, it's just awful. I hope you and didn't then, go so, in the theater. No, this I saw. I remember I saw it on cable. But uh, And then I guess, like, people have tried over the years to try to, you know, bring this back. And Rennie Harlan, Gina Davis is then husband, uh, David Cronenberg, and there was a third sort of script written. And people have sort of, like, flirted with this idea. But... Uh, I don't. The only thing that I think ever came out is I know that there's a comic. Like I know that they had some sort of graphic novel sequel that came out at some point. Hmm. But you know, I, we've talked about this before. Like I think a lot of times you're better off not to make the sequel, and you know these things are much better off living on in novels, graphic novels, video games. You know what I'm saying? Like then yeah. you're not really messing with the original. People don't feel like it's a violation of the original. And people can kind of enjoy it on its own. Like, The Thing doesn't have a sequel, but The Thing, um, I think Dark Horse Comics, I think I talked about this when we did The Thing podcast. Like, The Thing has a, a, a sequel of sorts in, like, a four-issue Dark Horse Comics uh, series that's that's really well done. And it's an interesting continuation of the movie. And, you know, it didn't doesn't hurt the movie at all that there's a couple of comic books that give a little more about what happened after the movie ends. You know what I mean? Whereas, yeah, yeah, you have you more know, leeway with comic books. Yeah, but The Fly 2 suddenly becomes canon, right? And it's just <laughs> awful. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that was not probably a bad decision. So, did you did you did you read that uh, you know, Gene Siskel um part of original Roger Ebert's original partner for those who don't know Siskel at the Ebert, movies. At the movies, there were some of the original sort of TV film reviewers that did a show just reviewing movies on PBS right. a half hour a week. And right. sort of unlike Rex Reed, who was a little snooty, like like Siskel and Ebert were where they were a surrogate for you. Like they were people who liked to go to the movies and munch popcorn. You know, even though they were sort of erudite film reviewers, they they had a little bit of fanboy to them. They were actually that was actually a great show. The two of them. There was never, uh, you know, uh, Gene Siskel uh, died, I think. Uh, he died he had at, a brain tumor. Yeah, quite a long time ago. Um, you know, they had a, a fairly long run together, but, um, you know, he tragically died relatively young. And Ebert kept going with a series of uh, replacements, and none of them ever came close to 
uh, replacing him. Um, well, and the good thing about Siskel and Ebert is that they could really sort of spar with each other, yeah. whereas the the people that Ebert got with him after Siskel died just wanted to sort of like suck know, up curry favor. Yeah. <laughs> so that they get asked to be on the show again. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he died of a brain tumor. Yeah. He had brain tumor. I mean, it's so Gene Siskel anyway uh, said that uh, Jeff Goldblum got got the shaft because he didn't get nominated for an Oscar. Um, for for playing Seth Brundle in this movie, um, so I think you know the movie was well received at the time by critics and by audiences, and um, but to me, I really remember it being okay. But I just I think if you're looking back and trying to pick a movie that you want to see, and you, if you have any concerns about maybe things not aging well this this is a pretty good pick uh it's breezy and it and it really holds up pretty well yeah and you know it's funny because goldblum went on to be a big big star you know like his right. his career was steady and he just kept moving up and he had movies throughout the 80s 90s 2000s even now you know like he's he's had a great career yeah and, and jurassic you know, park was after this right. a few yeah, years later I mean, uh, many years later i mean jurassic park is at least a decade after this um uh, but think, uh, maybe, yeah. I think it, it's got it's because it's got to be around ninety six, ninety seven. But uh, but you know it's funny because Gina Davis, you know her career sputters. You know, like she was a big big star, uh, but her her career ultimately sputters really after Cutthroat Island. That's why I mentioned it before. Well, Jurassic Park is ninety three, by the way. But did you ever see Cutthroat Island? No, fortunately. It's it's literally the film that destroyed her career. It's it was directed by her husband Rennie Harlan, um, and it's a it's like a pirate adventure, and and it's it's sort of famous for its success and the fact that like they couldn't get anybody to to be in it because they I wanted Gina Davis that. to be the badass pirate, and like she was going to have all the action and all the good stuff, and they couldn't find a male lead who was like going to play backseat to that, and in the end. They they got Matthew Modine, believe it or not, Private Joker, uh, to do it. But like it's it's famous for its sort of like horrible production, rewrites, you know, terrible reviews, and for the fact that it 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 literally killed Gina Davis's career, from which I don't think she ever recovered. I vaguely remember it at the time, yeah. But uh, I mean, she was so big; she was in Tootsie, right? Yeah, that was she her was first movie, in, I think. She was in The Fly. She's in uh, The Accidental Tourist. She's in Thelma and Louise, League of Their Own. Like, Beetlejuice, yeah. Yeah, she's she's riding the rocket there early on. And then after Cutthroat Island, it's just... Stuart Little. Right, yeah. So, or worse, right? She's, Stuart Little, she's, one, two, and three. Right, yeah. You know that when they when you agree to do Stuart Little 3, you know, when your agent calls you and says, do you want to do Stuart Little 3? And you're like, yeah! Exactly. Right? Like, you've turned the corner. Um, but, uh, it's just, it's interesting. It, it shows you by the way, how hard it is to be not just good, but to, to be consistent, you know? And there are a lot of vagaries in Hollywood too. And especially, you know, if you're a woman too, that the second you start to put on a wrinkle, you're in trouble. Although if you see her now, like she really doesn't look very different. Like Gina Davis has aged pretty darn well. Like I, like if you look at pictures of her from the last couple of years, she doesn't look that different. I mean, she looks older, but she doesn't look that bad for, uh, you know, for the, the miles there. Um, 
What was I going to say? Uh, you know, I mean, it's a to go back to the movie, you know, it's such a great sort of seminal sci-fi concept, you know, and it's sort of like, you know, Seth plays God and it bites him, you know, like it's right. almost like a, it's like it's not just a tragedy. It's like a Greek tragedy, this thing. Yeah. I, you know, I had forgotten how short it was. In my mind, it was a much longer movie, but like I just blinked and it was over. I watched it with my daughter, who's 16, and she loved it. She thought it was great. Um, well, that's good. And she likes horror movies, my daughter. And she thought like, you know, so like a, a modern teenager, you know, she didn't have any problem with it. She didn't think it looked fake. She thought it was scary. You know, like there's enough sort of jump scares in it, you know, beyond just gore. Like when he breaks the wrist of the guy during the arm wrestling match yeah. or when he dissolves status, 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 whatever his name is, his hand and his foot, you know, like or when he jumps through the window to, to sort of steal her, you know, like there's enough big jump cuts in this or, you know, jump scares to keep you engaged too. Right. And, and tension. Yeah. And, and pathos, you know, like I yeah. think that that's, that's what really I think makes the movie, I, I think maybe that's its saving grace, you know, like at the end of the movie, you know, he, he attempts to, for the listeners, he attempts to perhaps treat, if not cure himself by his ideas that if he can keep merging with other people, he can incorporate more human DNA and get a little bit, become at least more human than he is. And he tries to do it to Gina Davis and it fails and he ends up through a sort of complex series of events, he fuses with the telepod. Like he, he, he like doesn't merge with another person. He merges with the pod itself. Right. Um, and he's sort of like half bug, half metal telepod. And, you know, he's truly this pitiful creature at the end. And um, he grabs a shotgun and holds it up to his head and he can't, you know, he can't squeeze the trigger anymore because he's got, you know, you know, bug hands. And, 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 you know, there's this sort of sad shot where it's filmed from a high level looking down and he's holding the shotgun to his, his, you know, puppet forehead. And you really <laughs> kind of at the end of the movie, at the last possible moment, like when you've been just horrified and afraid of him for the last half hour, you know, they end where you feel sympathy for him. Right. Poor you know, and yeah. And you're sad that like, you know, such a, an appealing guy with so much potential came to like the worst possible end you can imagine yeah and, and, and all he needed was one of those stupid bug zappers and this would never have happened fly swatter <laughs> or, you know, those, just, you know, those little those little sticky strips that hang down from the paper. ceiling right <laughs> just the stupid bug zapper up in the corner you know throwing some of that the ultraviolet light down and he would have been fine and you know also like we're, we're sort of drifting now but it's okay but um the whole idea of teleportation, you know, is it's such a rich sci-fi concept. Like, you know, in Star Trek, you know, my brother and I used to always like talk when we were kids, like you could solve 99% of any problem in Star Trek with the transporter, you know, because it's basically like magical, you know, got cancer will be in the tumor out of you, you know, like, oh, you're old, we'll beam you back into your young body, you know, like you can, you, uh, you know, alien ship coming, beam a section of its hallway, you know, like there's always something you could do with the transporter, which is why they always had to have it break. <laughs> but, you know, this, this, this kind of takes the teleportation idea and shows like it's complex and it's risky and it's dangerous. Yeah. You know, and, and this makes the idea of teleportation scary. You know, like the, the old trope was that, you know, McCoy never wanted to get into the transporter because he, he thought it wasn't safe. Right. Right. And, and, you know, like this takes that that one line throwaway concept to its extreme. Well, you know, like the teleporter isn't safe and he's right. 
Yeah, I mean, if there's a damn thunderstorm, you get mirror, mirror. <laughs> right. Or you get the, the evil version of you comes out. You know, if there's an ion storm, remember the evil version yes. of Kirk and the enemy within? Yep. I'm Captain Kirk! You know, <laughs> like, you get that. Scratch, getting scratched by Janice Rand. You know, you get with that. <laughs> Do you remember, I know that, remember, I think I even borrowed this from you when we were kids. I hope I returned it, but uh, I borrowed from you when we were kids. Larry Niven wrote a short, he wrote a book of short stories about what would happen to the world if teleportation were ever invented. And it's like the ultimate disruptive technology. Is that where and that like book people, went? I know. I, I, I'm sure I borrowed it from you. I, I hope I returned it. You know, that and Nor Crystal Tears, I remember I borrowed it from you. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Alan Dean Foster. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that all those stories were like people didn't use a teleporter to go from New York to London. They used it to rob a bank or have an affair or murder somebody like that's the the gist of that is that um you know like people very very quickly use the teleporter for nefarious purposes yeah it's kind of like which the, is probably what would happen that's like the irobot of the teleporter right yeah no 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 it's it's i can't remember what it's called but it's by larry niven it's a book of stories um doctor who you know on doctor who they have teleportation that they refer to as transmats uh, like for transmaterialization, I guess. But like on Doctor Who, the, like whenever they use a, a, a teleportation, it's it's like a throwaway. Like it's never integral to the story. And it's never used to resolve the plot like it is on Star Trek sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, it's just like the Doctor needs like, oh, the TARDIS has been taken. So he's got to get from the space station to the planet. So he takes a teleporter. And then there's no mention of it ever again. But it's interesting how like this idea finds its way all through science fiction. I remember right. remember in Star Trek the motion picture there's a scene of somebody dying in the teleporter. Do you remember that? Vaguely. I think it's at the beginning, isn't it? Yeah, it's right at the beginning before they leave to go hunt down V'ger and it's um it's it's sort of what gets them to leave space dock without a science officer so that when Spock shows up in the shuttle they need him. Um but uh but I remember seeing that in the theater and it's sort of implied that the the person sort of materialized back on Earth as this sort of like gruesome, amorphous thing. Uh, yeah, and that, that was like an interesting way to sort of expand on like maybe the teleporter doesn't work so much. It was in the beginning of the picture shortly before you dozed off. The Star Trek, the motionless picture. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Uh, Michael Crichton has, um, he has a book about, it's a B book and it's a C movie. And I can't remember what it's called, but it's about uh, guys who teleport back in time to the Middle Ages. Uh, have you seen or read that? I remember something about it, but I don't know if we just talked about it or if it's I actually... A, it's, a, it's another sort of take on the... the I think the it's a short of, story or a novella no, or something. No, it's, it's a novel. I, okay. I remember reading it, but... Um, but the gimmick in that is that you can only go through so many times and you start to incur errors. Mm. And like, um, you know, so like there's limited number of trips you can make. And I've seen versions of that in other sci-fi media that you could teleport, but only a handful of times um, because, you know, you'll get damaged. And I know Heinlein has a, a novel where people use teleporters to colonize other planets. And the gimmick in the Heinlein book is you can only go through once. Like, that you pick a planet, you pick your target destination, you know, Epsilon, Eridani, 3, whatever the fuck. Um, and you bring with you 
horses and cattle and chickens and everything you could possibly need, right? Because you're basically going to the frontier, and right. you go through the you go through the teleporter, and you know that's it. Like once you get there, there's no booth to step into to go home. Like you're there forever, which is yet another interesting take on the whole teleportation idea. Right. It shows you though, like it's that's what I mean. Like it's a great idea. Like you could you could build all sorts of stuff around it. Did you ever see? Just to end on a ridiculous note, did you ever see the Simpsons version of the fly? <laughs> no. It's so oh, I probably good. did. I just don't remember. So they get a teleporter booth that looks very much or suspiciously like Seth Brundle's <laughs> teleporter. And like the gimmick, there's two gimmicks is that one is that Bart uh, becomes like half Bart, half fly. Uh, and there's all sorts of, you know, chaos and like, you know, he's like boy sized Bart with a fly head and he's like sitting at the table and vomiting, you know, onto his plate and like Marge is rolling her eyes. And then Homer takes one of the teleport booths and puts it in the living room and he puts the other one next to the fridge where you can reach into the fridge without having to get off the chair. You can just reach his arm through. It's very, very funny. And at the end, like they do a version of the, the scene from the 1958 version where Bart's in the spider web. It's very, very good. It's vaguely uh, uh, familiar. I'm sure I saw it. Oh, I'm sure you did. But it's funny that like that it came all the way back around from 1957 in Playboy magazine to to The Simpsons. So for those listening, uh, you may not watch the Butterfly Baby or the monkey monkey. uh, What is it? Monkey dog scene, whatever. Monkey cat. Sorry. Mm -hmm. But watch The Simpsons version of The Fly. (laughs) You will not regret it. It's really good. All right. Uh, Should we wrap there? Yeah, let's end it. Okay, thanks again, and uh, hopefully we'll have our uh, new project launched uh, ASAP. And uh, again, uh, sorry for the gap in uh, popcorn drink combo, but we're back in business. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.